Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is In Between Stations Radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Good late night from In Between Stations Radio. Can you sleep? Are you awake? I, apparently, some of our listeners like to listen to me through the night. Put them to sleep, I guess. It's kind of a joke around here. Um, that's good. I mean, that's that's kind of... I know all about not being able to sleep sometimes. And so, it really helps, I think, to uh, have something to maybe take you through the night sometimes. And, uh, yeah... So, as you know, I've been trying to work through the, uh, the loss of <coughs> the lo- fighting this cold. Trying to work through the loss of, uh, of my uh, girlfriend, person I love dearly. Um, I will give you a little clue here. Some of Tiba is connected to, to um, Murky. Yeah, I won't go into too much detail there. Uh, Tiva was extremely shy. Uh, she had a speech impediment that troubled her a little bit and uh, a very brilliant uh, woman and uh, she had trouble sometimes with these brainstorms that would um, overwhelm her she'd become frightened and it was very traumatic but like I said when you love someone that's okay you can work through those things I really miss Tiva um, a lot even when she she was a traveler uh, and she liked to go out on the streets and wilderness areas and do solos and so um which is kind of how she was now my solos are a lot more solo without her and a lot of my ideas and in between stations were um connected to her we still do our broadcast uh iron murky so I and Murky still work together. She's a station programmer. <laughs> still work together like we always have. And um, so that's still there. But um, Tiva's gone. And uh, the, the world is a much darker place for me. Because she was a similar person. We, had, we shared a lot. Came up in a lot of uh, broadcasts uh, in disguise. <laughs> Incognito was her thing because she's extremely shy, uh, and I've maybe at some point when I feel like I can, I'll talk to you more about uh, connecting to someone after they die and the possibilities of that. Um, experiences I've had with her and a few other people leave me no doubt of the other world. I can sit there and argue all day about the physical evidence of that and you know I've talked about this in previous broadcasts and my god let's not go over (laughs) I'm constantly going over the problem with consciousness and materialism versus non-materialism and that we just there's so much we don't know And, and especially now if we have unlimited amount of other universes that we don't understand this whole uh thing that's just there's so much we don't know and to, to sit there and, and act like we do know and uh, it's like being back in the middle ages and trying to predict uh landings on the moon or just 
you know, science is good that way because it's self-correcting and it's taking us in this brave, into this brave new world. But there's a lot of things that isn't good about it because we're so self-assured that we think we know everything. And uh, these ancient tribes that I spent time with and go to ceremonies a lot um, let me know that, um, and they've been around a long time, that there's this vast wide world out there we just don't understand. And when you come in contact with that and you experience that, and I do have friends that are scientists that have experienced these unbelievably unusual things that happen in ceremonies and uh, hallucinogenic experiences, they don't like to share them uh, publicly because it, it assaults their professionalism with other scientists. So they use that term, the esoteric, and leave it at that. But with you, when you're with them in private, oh yeah, they have a lot of doubts about the current methodology used uh, in terms of it needs a lot more time to uh, perfect itself. And they know and I know you have these experiences that just happen and there's no way to explain it. You think the Twilight Zone strange? <laughs> and you know, by coincidentally, um, Rod Serling, um, and I really believe this because I myself have been in war and that was his experience. That really opens you up. It just shatters your, the world you grew up in. And, and you know, I, I grew up in a highly moralistic one because the religion that and the culture I was in, Mormonism, uh, is very moralistic. And, um, you know, it's just, you, you really do follow rules of honesty and other things like that. And when you go to a war, that's just all shattered. And I think for Serling, and he, he lost a very close friend in combat, and I think he was just messed up. I mean, his wife talks about him having these horrible nightmares. I mean, he died early, as a lot of geniuses do, and we miss him. There's never been anyone that could equal the Twilight Zone. They've tried that, you know, that old TV series. It's really the highlight of, of classic television. I think a lot of that, and, and Serling wrote a lot of his episodes, is based on him being opened up to this other realm, to this, to these questions about this, what's beyond, you know, what we experience in these, in this, in these short years as a lifetime. And I think that, I think buried in those episodes, I like to always say that, I like to say every movie you've seen now almost that's sci-fi or sort of mystery or, mis or, or based on the, you know, the weird ideas is based on uh, The Twilight Zone, this old classic series. You can take any good movie now, uh, maybe even Blade Runner, and, and fit it into a Twilight Zone episode. I haven't seen the, the Doctor Strange, the new movie on multiverses. I'm not sure I want to see it because I, I pretty much know what it's about. And I grew up reading the Marvel comic book Doctor Strange. The movies are good. I just don't like... Um, I don't like... The movies seem to take... A, I'm, really, I'm really in love with, the comic, with comic books, newsprint pages, to pick them up and read them and see the artwork and the sheer brilliance of writing and captions above people's faces and the articulation of the conversation and the story which Stan Lee was a genius at. And, of course, Jack Kirby. Oh, my God. These two guys were the golden people of comics. They just... It, it, to hold a, a, Jack, a, a Jack Kirby and Stan Lee comic book 
is unbelievable. And I, you know, I collected a large number, a number of those, which I handed down to my youngest son, who now collects them. Uh, and he's all familiar with stuff all the way into World War One comic books. And he loves comic books. I think he kind of likes the movies. I like some of the movies, but they don't really, they fall short of, of a real beautiful Silver Age comic. You know, Golden Age being World War Two, uh, but the Silver Age starting, I think, uh, early 60s, running into the early 70s. You know, I'm not sure on that. I have to pick it up and look at it. Fantastic. The inking and the whole process of holding one of those Jack Kirby and Stanley comics. And if you don't think they're they're great, get one. They're they're expensive. If they're in mint condition, you may pay as much as $25,000 for one. Yeah. So the some of the ones I have are extremely valuable. And I don't really give a give a damn about the money because they're just so beautiful. There's just to hold one and read one is it's a masterpiece. One of the highlights in in, in the art world and graphic uh, stories. I think Len Ward was really the first uh, person to have these sort of wordless novels, you know, that took the, the German uh, woodcutting uh, element in art, you know, where you cut into a piece of wood and then you, in the negative process, and you ink it and then you uh, put it down on, on paper and then you, you, you go through a roller and then you make a print. And that's a real art form. So Lynn Ward took that process where he used to just hang up a, a frame on the wall. George Elbert Burr, which is, is a huge master at printmaking, and his thing was etching and copper and metal plates. And he did these uh, Arizona landscapes, which I spend a lot of time in. Uh, and he would go, he would take these plates with him on his solo hikes, and then he would actually start to etch on the plates like there's a thunderstorm out there or a beautiful uh, red rock canyon or a wide open desert like it uh, um, on the reservation in, in uh, monument valley uh there's no his stuff's uh, i think the museum in northern arizona and i've seen this collection is one of the best in the world and it's absolutely priceless if you see one of, one of his one of his prints uh, I'm trying to think of the one I like the best. I have actually have a print in my house of his. Uh, it's it'll it'll you'll it'll take your breath away, and and to believe that that was it was hand done, and um, uh, you can't you can't you can't buy anything. His uh, his Arizona landscapes are priceless. If you, in the museum here in, in Flagstaff, founded by Mary Russell Colton and Harold Colton, Mary Russell Farrell Colton, who was a a famous woman artist in the Southwest who I adore uh, for several reasons. She was a great writer and a beautiful artist and, and, and had a huge heart and was into the solo. She did a lot of solo hiking, horse riding. Um, anyway, the point I'm making is the comic book, especially in the Silver Age, before things got so digitized and digital now, you know, you see the perfection of the of the design the artist makes mostly on computers now where all the stuff other stuff was hand-drawn I mean to get sketches that Jack Kirby made before he did a you know a, a, a Captain America or a Thor comic book to, just to get his sketches and his ideas they're they're just you couldn't touch one they're just so expensive now it's and it's really 
Um, something we're lacking now, I like to say, is doing things by hand. And I do a lot of my art in, in the digital, you know, mechanisms. I, I'll paint and draw on paper, and then I'll transfer it into the digital medium and work on in Photoshop. You know, everybody makes these jokes about Photoshop, that it's this cheap way to get out of stuff. And I, don't, I haven't met that many people that know how to use Photoshop. It's extremely complex. And Illustrator, and now Adobe Lightroom, um, these are uh, their paintbrushes and you gotta know how to use them and uh, most people don't I mean what most people are doing now is they're just using filters uh, on their uh, cell phones and it makes the the art you know you used to have to take your camera out and set the exposure levels and the f-stops uh, and uh, develop your negative in in the dark room I just noticed that I am drinking too much coffee <laughs> I had four cups I've had four cups this morning which is not typical me because I usually limit myself to one cup I don't like you know to be too addicted to a substance and I noticed that the coffee's making me speed up <laughs> my uh, show here I mean I have a time limit you know I'm always noticing that and I have ideas but sometimes <laughs> I'm picking up the pace here and my clock on my computer here as I'm on the air is telling me hey Dave you're talking too fast <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I, I and so I, I, I think. Um, where was I? <laughs> oh, I'm drinking some coffee. It's in the middle of the night. Have you seen Orion? Oh my God! What an amazing star constellation. In the winter time, autumn time, this comes back up. It's one of my favorite. I mean, how can it not be your favorite? Because below Orion, you know, is the brightest star. The most beautiful star for me is Cirrus. And, you know, Orion, and with the tribes here, is extremely important. Some Hopis point that as their origin place. Interesting, huh? Uh, the Egyptians, uh, seeing Orion is the place, it's, it's, it's connected to Osiris, God of the Dead. Um, it's where our resurrection sequences come from. Uh, this beautiful concept of resurrecting from the dead. You know, this is connected to plants and to seasons. The Egyptians were very agrarian. We really get into the sophistication of their culture, which was extreme. And a lot of the way we think and do is based on Egyptian history, uh, ancient, ancient Egypt. The Greeks based a lot of their uh, thoughts and the way they did things on the ancient Egyptians. These guys had a, a major influence on the, on the modern world as we see it now. And we, we've forgotten that. But if you read old books and you study Latin and you study... Uh, Arabic and some of these translations. I mean, I'm not saying I know Arabic that well. I know Latin a little bit. You start to see these translations going on from one record to another, from the Greeks, from the Egyptians, uh, to Christianity, the Coptic. You see all these translations going back and forth, and you start reading these different sets of scriptures and religions, you know, uh, Islam and Christianity and uh, even Hinduism, and you start seeing that the Egyptians had this deeper influence uh, on everyone in, in the way we think. And a resurrection, resurrection uh, is a very old concept with the Egyptians and, and, and basically with all tribes that I've been to. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's in their mythologies. You know, a lot of these tribes here don't know that much about Egyptians. And of course now, um, I really don't think the Egyptians came over here. <laughs> But, you know, knowledge is coming back and is going back and forth between what we call the old and new world. 
uh, and, and now we're starting to discover with the, with the footprints found in the White Sands in Mexico and now in the Great Basin in the Great Salt Lake Desert where I spent lots of time and I already knew that there were pre-Clovis cultures there. You know, archaeology, as I've talked about, is one of my majors at the University of Utah. But even back then, I knew something was wrong with with the way the School of Archaeology is put together. It was very um, tight with uh, these old-schooled archaeologists. And they had some very set parameters on how they seen creation, how they seen the new world and you know and and how every everything came from the old world to the new world and it you know in, in you know 16,000 years when I was there that was the that was the max maybe 20,000 with Clovis maybe now that's being pushed back to 25,000 30,000 and now there's even possible projections of 130,000 years you know native if you ask tribes here you know and their mythologies are quite old like Hopi and Zuni Zuni especially four and five thousand years in the same spot like I said more or less wandering around before they came to the middle place um, they always say uh, we emerged from the landscape we've always been here this is the old this is the oldest place in the world you know a lot of tribes say that in the old world you know Siberia and Siberia and places like that um, you know a lot of these tribes have their origins uh, as being here and so interesting if you get a chance to listen to my uh, two-hour episode, it was the first time I'd ever uh, put one of my episodes for two hours as a podcast. It had been live on shortwave, uh, no big deal, but I hadn't ever done a podcast that went two hours. And I had reservations about that because it was nice to just do a broadcast live, and then, you know, you, you can't, it wasn't recorded. So whatever you heard, you got, and then it was over. <laughs> it's over. But now when I do these podcasts... I can I go back and find you know mistakes and stuff and and I really resist editing that stuff um, because I like it to be in that format like you and I are sitting in the living room and we're talking to each other um, but the blood red moons of August explores my time in in the West Desert Great Salt Lake Desert of Utah which is substantial I think ten or fifteen years of being out there. Um, and explores not only my time out there and my discoveries, but this this full-blown mystical event that happened out there. And, you know, I don't... It's, like I said, it's hard to go into detail about those kind of things because they're really nonverbal. There's not the words to explain them. And so, um, and this is an interesting broadcast. If you go back and listen to it, um, and I was a little nervous on, on podcasting that because... Um, you know, it might show my weaknesses in trying to uh, work with tenses. When you have a mystical experience, uh, a lot of times, it, it, the biggest problem, at least for me, especially uh, in, with ayahuasca and yopo, when you have these, or, or uh, you take a lot of, of these uh, psilocybin mushrooms, um, you know, in a strict ceremonial format where it's religious, uh, this can go on for hours, and the time element is completely erased. And, and you know, I've mentioned this before, a lot of tribes, and because I know Hopi, more about Hopi, because I spend a lot of time, have family and friends there, I love Hopi. Don't get me off on a tangent. <laughs> this is an amazingly deep culture. But uh, they have three dialects they speak now. Uh, before, earlier, 
when the Spanish first came and before that, there may have been a lot more dialects in that. Hopi's not really one place, but many villages and really many different clans and societies. And so when you say, let's go to Hopi, I'm always confused because, well, which village? Which Kiva? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's an amazingly complex place. And I've been going there 25 years, and I don't know anything. You know, and, 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 and even though I spent a substantial amount of time in ceremonies and with friends and listening to elders, and many of those have passed away, and sitting silently in their, in their um, sessions they have, or they're willing sometimes to share with you, you know, because they'll translate. I know Hopi a little bit, not well enough to follow a conversation, but enough in, in, in their politeness and actually translating from Hopi to English. And with one of my friends, he actually goes into other Pueblo languages. Uh, it's Santo Domingo and uh, Tosuki. And, and, you know, he has, and I speak of him, uh, he's, he knows several languages. And he's always graceful enough to translate. Just a beautiful, humble uh, soul that could challenge me on, in every way if he wanted to, but, uh, but chooses to um, translate. So when you have these. And you have these ceremonies translated and, and the language and you get to understand the complexities it's amazingly um, beautiful okay I'm still going really fast here <laughs> let's backtrack Orion the constellation Orion is connected a lot with the passing of the dead especially in Egyptian culture Orion Osiris and then his beautiful uh, wife Isis uh, and who's constantly, you know, this, this whole, if you want to read some amazing stuff, read Book of the Dead. I would suggest newer translations because Budge's stuff, and I read uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics a little bit uh, from school. I, I haven't really followed it, so I've lost a lot of my fluidity in that language. But the newer translations of Book of the Dead is, are, are amazing. And there's one that's just been all done, and they've taken the manuscripts and the... The pap the papyrus the, the paper and they've you know the Egyptians made and 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 the, and they've and there's the pyramid text um, but this this new translation the Book of the Dead is beautiful and I think you can buy it for twenty five dollars it's this huge book with with uh, you know with everything there the pictures of the hieroglyphs and the writing the book of going forth into the light of day I think is how it's translated properly it is so incredibly beautiful. And well worth reading. And 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 Budge, uh, you know, it was a long time. This stuff's over a hundred years ago. There were mistakes there, and so it's been updated. So read that. Yeah. So uh, Osiris is connected to, and the land of the dead is connected to this constellation Orion. And, and many of the tribes here are very connected to that cycle of that constellation coming up uh, in the autumn and winter time. And there is nothing as beautiful as going to a night dance at Hopi, where these beautiful sacred uh, dancers, the Kachinas, come. And if you're, you know, up out of the kiva, if you're invited, underneath the stars, and in and, and, and the frost, and in the when it's cold, and you really get this connection to uh, the life element. The Hopis are so famous for this sacredness of life. Nothing beautiful I can imagine. <laughs> All the experiences I've had. The night dances are some of the most beautiful things you'll ever experience, uh, both in the kiva and outside of it, if you're invited. Um, it's something you have to be invited to. You just don't go there. Um, hope it's not an easy place to navigate through unless you know somebody. And I like to say they have one of the best security systems in the world. 
they don't need the police. The word of mouth and these guys have an eagle eye are always watching. And they will know if you're there. And especially if you're not supposed to be there, they'll find out. <coughs> People go around sharing knowledge they're not supposed to share. Basically because this is very ancient knowledge and it takes most of your life to learn what it's about. You think going to school as a medical doctor and getting a PhD, these guys, it takes an entire lifetime to understand just a little bit of Hopi. And there's thousands of years of this, you know, there. And so there's no, there's no uh, severing of the ties, like when the pilgrims came here and severed their ties to England and changing your last name. These guys have been in the same place uh, acquiring knowledge constantly for thousands of years. And now if we're looking at these time periods of 25,000 years, 30,000 years, 50,000, 75,000. The possibilities of ancient man actually being found now in the DNA of people in the Amazon is starting to come up. Wow. Out of Africa. Out of the Amazon? <laughs> And I, you know, we have this. We have this. A lot to understand about the uh, the Americas. The complexities of the civilizations here are astounding, and staggering, and in many ways challenges the old world, the Mesopotamia, the Neolithic age. There's something going on here comparable at the same time it's looking like now. So, um, yeah. Uh, tune in. It's getting more and more pleasantly surprising. But not for these tribes, like the Hopis. They're like, well, hey, we've always known this. It's like, what took you guys so long? And then they're like, well, that's because you're outsiders. And that's because you've tried to force us to learn your way and, and indoctrinate us with what you brought here, which is really just scratches the surface of what we already knew. So it's nice to sit in these, in these, with these tribes that have been here a long time and listen to their stories and their mythologies and their sophisticated means of learning how to grow things, humility and how to act. And all this ties into the languages itself. And so that brings me back to the tenses and languages. And the older Hopi uh, doesn't really have tenses, past, present, and future. You know, that's a little confusing. And, I, and like I said, when you have these experiences in the other realms, you know, where you have these, these uh, ayahuasca experiences, or you have these full-blown visions that happen in, in ceremonies sometimes, there's no, um, there's no, the time is erased. You're in this kind of present tense that's unlike anything <laughs> I can explain. It's, it's universal time. You know, the time we have here is obviously focused on this planet. The sun rises and it sets, and now it's governed by, you know, the computers and by your business and by, you know, you come to work at this time and leave at this time. You're getting paid for this. Everything, you know, well, and, and at the end of your uh, subscription, at the month, you know, at the month with this website, you're going to have to pay. You know, time's dictated by money. It's dictated by uh, technology. Uh, it's not natural. So even that's a, there's a perverse movement of time. Uh, that's owned by businesses, that's owned by your government. Even now they're debating this whole thing. You know, Arizona's cool because Arizona doesn't change its clock. We're like, duh, why does everybody keep changing their clock? Oh, to save time, you know, when the f so the farmer has more daylight. It's like, no, it's about controlling time. Your employer controlling time, your government controlling time. A lot of people are sick of it, sick of losing sleep, and it's like, let's just have the same time. 
And that's another problem. Time is very is a very strange thing, isn't it? All right, let's play a song here because I've been drinking more coffee. Shit. <laughs> and you know where I got to go, right? Right. So let's play a let's play an old song here and then we'll come back to this thought. back I also let uh, old gunner the crazy dingo healer and his little sister the red healer outside to to do their thing too like I just did only they're not drinking coffee I tried to feed gunner coffee <laughs> he didn't like it um, he did taste it and that was kind of the end <laughs> and now if I even hold the cup of coffee up he he he, he runs away he doesn't want to he doesn't want anything to do with it. I also, one time, you know, I don't drink alcohol too often. Um, occasionally I'll have a beer, you know, 
not, not very, you know, this extreme thing. I, I, I try to be careful with that stuff. Anyway, I tried to give Gunner uh, some beer once. <laughs> he can't, you know what? He liked it. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not down, not tan, not, you know. So if I have a bottle of beer, Gunner will come over there. He has never forgotten. <laughs> it was, a, you know, I don't remember. It was a German dark beer which for some people they probably wouldn't like. It's so thick and dark. That's that's the beer I like anyway. But I I just don't drink alcohol very often. Alcoholism runs in my family because um, of my indigenous connections. Maybe, the, you know, the genetics. I'm not saying... I don't want to go on that thing about Indians being drunks because that's bullshit. But, um, you know, it's just a stereotype. But there is a genetic propensity in there uh, to not be able to digest sugars properly. And my father plays into that, and, and uh, his mother's family. Uh, and my, you know, my, my grandma Sarah was indigenous. Uh, she never drank, but some people in her family, <laughs> including her father, I think, did. So, um, that, uh, yeah, I leave that alone. I know better. And, I, I, and having a healthy body is really important to me. So, um, and it takes effort on my part. And I've lost my sister, uh, to some degree my father, um, uh, yes, and, and, and other people in my family on my dad's side had a problem with alcoholism. So um, I, I really, it's, it's a, a sort of a initiation you have to go through if you know you have problems with it, and um, you have to get past it. And so and if you uh, have had those problems, you know what I'm talking about. And it can, it can be ongoing your entire life. Some people do really good at covering it up. <laughs> I know some real good businessmen that are absolutely raging alcoholics. One friend keeps this little flask. God, it's an expensive one. I think it's actually gold-plated inside. <laughs> he keeps this flask. In his, you know, he, he runs a, an entire business. He's a CEO. He drinks, like, I, I can't believe how much he drinks. But he, he's pretty strict about it on his job. He does have a little flask in his desk, uh, but when he's away doing things, he's always drinking and he's real good at hiding it. And he he holds his alcohol well, but he's a raging alcoholic <laughs> nevertheless. You know, it's, I, I, let's not get off on this subject um, because it's it, it's funny, but it's also extremely sad. And if you love someone and you lose them to this, um, it's a tough one. Yeah, so we were talking about tenses. Talking about time. Time's a strange one. And you know, Einstein lets us know about that with the theory of relativity. And we looked at, uh, you know, this whole dynamic of, of speed. You know, that old joke. You know, if you're going to drive your car at the speed of light in outer space, hell, you'd be doing outer space with the car. <laughs> hey, hey, Frank, hey, look at there goes the planet Jupiter. God damn it, close the door. Sorry. <laughs> uh you know, when you turn your lights on, you're moving at the speed of light, um, what, what happens? Nothing. You can't see anything. <laughs> I don't know what does happen when you're driving at the speed of light and you turn your lights on. I'm sure somebody's going to send me an email and tell me. Um, but speed changes uh, time. And, you know, and if you're if you're ever flown across the world, like uh, I did to the Middle East and went to war there, um, you know, you're on the plane for 17, 18, 19, 20 hours, and you cross what's called a the dateline and so um, you lose time and you know it's weird and it, so there has to be time zones you know we have this thing called Greenwich Mean Time uh, Zulu time we called it in the army and special forces you have Zulu time um, and, and you go off that when you're on the uh, shortwave radio like we are here 
you don't use a standard clock time. It just doesn't work. You use what's called UTC time uh, and uh, universal time. Uh, how do you? I always say UT, UTC. I'm forgetting the acronym. Coordinative universal time. I had to think about it for a minute. So you use a yeah, you use Zulu time. So it's the same all over the world, and you don't get confused. Um, I think the first place they had Greenwich Mean Time or, or Zulu time was um, in Greenwich, uh, in England. There's still a, a fascinating clock there and everything. Now we have these atomic time clocks that are you know extremely ac accurate, so accurate that it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> You know, and your employer can get, you know, all our cell phones and everything connect up to the, you You can't say, you know, you can't make an excuse anymore at time because you got your cell phone, you know, you got these clocks now and you can set up that are exact. I, I don't like it. Um, you know, if anybody that visits my house, <laughs> is I like to collect calendars. And so I have all these calendars at my house and none of them are the current date. Uh, and none of my clocks, I have three clocks. My cuckoo clock, because uh, uh, one of the hands got fell off because my son, <laughs> my youngest son was fooling around and threw a ball and broke the hand off. I never replaced it, and you know cuckoo clocks are kind of a pain because you have to pull the, you have to pull the chains every morning, you know, when it runs out, uh, and so sometimes they're off. But I have my 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 cat clock with the eyes that go back and forth, tick tick tick. Have you seen those? You know, I, I talk about this in my episodes. Uh, my oldest son has a huge cat clock they're awesome the old cat clocks are so beautiful the the, the mechanical ones you used to plug in they cost a fortune so these eyes these big huge felix cat eyes go back and forth with each tick of the clock <laughs> and the tail goes too and you know some of my friends it freaks them out they they, they get they don't like it i love it and it's and it's my uh it's how I keep track of time. So that one's accurate. But again, you know, time changes. And it's this, it's this mystery. And especially when you have dreams or you're involved in uh, hallucinogenic ceremony and uh, visionary episodes, uh, time, you know, yeah, there's not even any Zulu time. It's like I call universal time. Um, it's, it's out of the element of time. And, and, um, yeah, and you can't say, well, this is, you know, when it, you know look at your watch. <laughs> Can you imagine, I can't even imagine this on Yahe or Ayahuasca. <laughs> what good a watch would do you? Because you're in this dynamic that, like I always say, is more real than this, than, than this reality. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, yeah, your watch goes off. In fact, you lose track of time. And it seemed, in, in fact, I had one experience that seemed like years had passed. And when I came back, you know, and you slowly come back from these things, it isn't like, hey, it's all over, and you're, and you're back into this reality, nine to five reality. It's, it's gradual. And then you start realizing as you gradually come out of this, out of these really powerful hallucinogenic uh, experiences, you start realizing that, oh, I have a watch. Oh my God, it's four o'clock. <laughs> Wait a minute, didn't this start at eight o'clock last night? And it seems like lifetimes have passed, and, and when in reality, it's, you know, it's only five or six hours, seven hours. And so, um, I had a really unusual experience I'll have to tell you about, and this is, this is, this is going somewhere. Let me have another drink of coffee. I have a real, I have a kind of a nasty cold. 
<clears throat> that comes with this uh, time of year and when it gets colder. Um, we're getting down. I think yesterday it was 11 above zero. And we had a snowstorm. had a big snowstorm, and then it got really cold. So it went from really nice, warm, pleasant autumn days and kind of 32 degrees at night to like close to below zero all of a sudden. So, you know, you pick up cold sometimes. And I run a lot. I'm on the landscape a lot. And uh, I, I never get real bad colds, uh, although during COVID I had some pretty bad episodes. Generally, though, I'm pretty healthy. And I think that's largely because I'm out on the landscape a lot and I go through these cycles these, with colds and other things like that. And they're, they're usually not too long. So I think when you have one set established reality, it's a problem if you're always going off of that, especially if you travel and go to other cultures and other... Um, you know, tribes, and uh, if, you, if you go overseas, you know, a lot of people stick to their culture, the American culture, you know, the first world culture, we call it. But if you get into these older, radic more radical cultures, and I say radical because they're, it's a huge departure from our own. And our own's pretty new, especially in America. Um, what, 250 years old? When you go to a place where the culture's five, 6,000 years old, uh, they have different ideas about things. And I think a lot of us like, and so, you know, there's this thing called cultural shock you get a lot of times when you go into these cultures because they're so radically different than your own. You want to fall back on what's familiar to you. And so, uh, you know, a lot of missionaries used to do that when they went to the Amazon places. Drag their culture, you know, like drag your trailer when you go hunting. When you go out in the wilderness, you hook up your house and you pull them behind your truck. <laughs> Some of these trailers are as big as, you know, a house. Some of them. It's ridiculous. I mean, I've been I've hiked up a mountain before, and then I'd sit and sit on top and watched the deer hunter go up the dirt road with this big, huge long trailer. You know, when I was a kid, we went hunting, and we went, it was kind of cool. You had a camper, a little teeny camper that barely s slept two people in it, or or you slept in a tent. And there's nothing like having a snowstorm on your tent when you're going deer hunting. Snow's like four or five feet. <laughs> Yeah, now that people take these huge trailers, it's like they never leave their house. And they get out of breath when they hike to the mountain. You know, some people have heart attacks, drink a lot of beer, you know, and have all this ammunition. You know, we used to actually uh, load our own ammunition, make our own stuff. And, and so each bullet was precious. Each shotgun um, ammunition, you, you loaded all that stuff. I had friends that made all their ammunition, cleaned their own weapons, guns, calm weapons in the army. Um, so you didn't have <clears throat> this huge amounts of ammunition and 20 different guns, you know. Obviously, when I'm up there and I hear an automatic weapon go off because I've been in a war, <laughs> they're illegal, but people carry them. Uh, I don't know what they're doing with that. Armor-piercing rounds, you know, I, I kind of do support gun rights. I don't want to get in this argument uh, because I grew up with them, but I grew up in a world where you're very responsible for your weapons. You had extreme training. Uh, you had all these th do's and don'ts, and you cleaned your weapon. You put it in the gun cabinet. Uh, you, you're, and it was a, it was an art form. Hunting was, uh, you know, when you went out. I remember my stepfather. Um, you know, he saved a lot of money. I mean, either we had to buy a half a side of beef, or he got a deer. You know, he cleaned his own deer and. Uh, uh, and you know, and that's what you do. And, and if you got one, that was a huge celebration. You used to, you know, hang it up. You clean out the insides, which is a huge task if you've ever cleaned. Have you ever cleaned a big, large animal? I mean, I grew up on a farm, so we we did that a bit. 
it's a huge task. And so you'd hang your, your deer outside in the cold weather after you'd come home from the hunt. And then you would, uh, some, some of my friends actually would cut up their own animal. These guys are incredible sportsmen. My, my grandfather on my dad's side was an amazing hunter, and he did everything himself. Uh, and, you know, he bought his guns, but he cleaned them, and he uh, shined them up, and took them apart, and put them together, and, and, you know, he loaded his own ammunition, and he cleaned his own animals when he shot them, and then he would track the herds. You know, I still, I picked up a lot of that from him, how to track herds, and, you know, with my dog, I, I don't hunt anymore. Uh, it's a real art form. These people that have all this radar and satellite and, and a mile-long trailer out there and, uh, you know, the close to satellite television and, and, and Roku and they're out in the middle of the wilderness. And, and you just sit at the top of the mountain and you watch what I call these freaks <laughs> that never really get out of their truck. You know, they don't... Um, one of the things I love... <laughs> Is just follow them, you know, and run behind them, and, I, and I'm just these guys are in horrible shape. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I could go on and on about this. There's, there's a lot of fun, but, you know, it's it's how things are now. I shouldn't be critical, um, but yeah, we've a lot of things have changed. So back to uh, time. That's the thing when you're around wild animals, wolves, and bears, and other animals, uh, deer and elk, and and I, you know, we don't have moose too much here at least where i am in flagstaff area they probably do in other places when you're around these these guys have their have their natural time the sun comes up and goes down they're not wearing wrist wrist watches they follow the season and when you run a lot and you're and you're soloing a lot you realize all the animals and all the plants have this beautiful seasonal clock and they follow it because that's how you survive all the animals follow this it's in their navigation systems yeah, they don't need the internet to navigate with. They don't need GPS. And like, you know, like I've said before, I think a lot of times we get so reliant on the technology that we lose our natural propensity and talents to do these things. And some of us choose, I know my youngest son is completely a natural <laughs> Run. He's a barefooted runner. He refuses to use GPS. Uh, I don't know if he uses a compass. Uh, I haven't taught him, but that's on there, you know, how to read maps. Um, he's, and he's been around Native Americans his whole life. He, he grew up at Hopi in a little village there. And, and so he's, he's a white boy, but he's not really, he's very bicultural. And so he's been very affected by Native traditions. And so it really, he's, and he, and some of my indigenous, my Native friends have done this. They've just completely dropped uh, the, the modern technological element. Hopis are famous for that, uh, or were. It's getting less and less where they just, they don't use technology. I have a friend that doesn't, they don't have electricity in their house on purpose. They could, and sometimes they fire up a generator if it gets too cold, but they have gas lamps, uh, they have coal heating, you know, it's still legal to use coal with a Hopi. Uh, they burn it in a little furnace, a little, in fact, I know, I have Hopi friends that still have these cast iron stoves from the 1920s that they've maintained and they still use and they put they go out and cut their wood and they put in there they, they want this manual labor it's it's very hopey it's very you know the work with the earth and working hard is part of their religion and they know from previous times and some of the clans come from the, the great civilizations in mexico uh, 
Tanish Talan and Teotihuacan, these cities of lights. When before there were lights, they, they knew how to light these things up with crystals and with magnificent technologies were there. And the Hopi clan, some of the clans of some of these tribes, they left because they, they felt that the modernization in that time period and in that previous world uh, stopped people from being humble, stopped you from using your hands. You know, just heavy, like in Egypt, you just get so many priests and so much royalty and so much upper class that um, they lose the ability to be humble, to be connected to the landscape, to work hard, to run, to, uh, to cut your wood, to, you know, you get the fat priest up in the temple that never moves from there, you know, and the, and the servants bring all the food to him, you know, whatever. Anyway, so these, these clans that later became Hopi, they migrated out of these huge cities, and they were quite large. In fact, we think now they may have been some of the largest cities in the world and most technologically advanced, especially in Central America, Mexico, and down in the Amazon. Um, so humility's always been an important thing to the Hopi people. And so working hard and not having all the technology. I even have one friend that refuses to watch TV. <laughs> he has a little handheld radio. He still listens to, you know, I don't think he has a shortwave radio like I do. And he still has his field. He, man <laughs> he actually uses a manual wooden plow. And he plants by hand a five-acre field. That's a lot. And he's also a runner, so he runs from his from his his house to his fields, which is about five miles, something like that, back and forth. And he does it on purpose. This guy works a job. He's <laughs> a wonderful thing. So, yeah, being natural, uh, and and at least finding some balance with that. So, so time, natural time, is, is important. I mean, I think we get, you know, if you notice the way cars are now, I mean, it used to be, because, um, you know, I run sometimes uh, inside the city on, on streets and stuff, and when you run, I used to run from my house to my work at the museum back and forth each day, and I think seven miles both, seven miles one way, so 14 miles, five days a week, sometimes six days a week. And, uh, and I had to cross a lot of highways and sometimes even the interstate, you know, I-40. And I've noticed that the acceleration of cars now from a stop sign, you know, from, from stop and go is so extreme now that I can't get across the road. I have, to, I have to sort of be able to read the traffic lights and time them ahead so I can get across with the traffic. Uh, because cars accelerate so fast from stop and, you know, with a new... Uh, with these new electric trucks they have now. And my son works for one of the major corporations that makes the fastest production truck in the world. And um, he sends me videos and goes from zero to 60. They have one of their trucks now. I don't even know if it's on production that does that in just a little over two seconds. <laughs> from zero to 60. That's like, that's drag race time. You know, the dragsters used to do that. Now that's, that's gonna be a production truck. My question always, why do you have to have something that fast? 
And, uh, you know, it's in their technology, we get used to this. You know, we get used to these bright lights. I've talked about this before. We get used to all this television. We get used to setting all the time. We get used to, you know, living in the metaverse, like, you know, Facebook's going towards that. Um, we get used to living in the digital world. We don't even notice. We don't recognize that we're actually selling ourselves short of what we can do. Instead of taking all these ATVs and, and big four-wheel drives and huge trailers as long as a, as big as a house, deal with your feet. Deal with your, you know, do it the old way. <laughs> you know, deer hunting used to be pretty tough stuff. Um, you parked your truck because most people didn't even have four-wheel drives back then. You walked up the mountain. It might take you all day. And then you, sh if you shot a deer, you had to bring it back. These huge, you know, male deer a buck can be just big and an elk can be almost a ton and it takes four or five men to bring that back and if you if your truck's not close by it's it's quite a task and of course what you do is you clean you actually quarter the animal uh, and then carry it back that way and i've had friends you know when i was a boy um they several times they had to cut the 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 elk up because it was so big and it was like a it was a four mile five mile hike back to the truck and now they you know you have these vehicles that go right to the site you never have to get off out of the setting position <laughs> i don't know folks anyway time so time is artificial we, we've created this artificiality of time and i think what it does is it increases you know these companies want higher yield and they, they push you to do more uh, and with all this efficiency of software and computers they can keep track of every minute that you're doing you know what you're doing on the production line and there's nothing <laughs> as stressful as working on a production line especially in some of these automotive places it's, and it's repetitious and everything is very timed everything is very efficient we become so efficient that time controls us artificial time and um it's bought and sold you know and it's like what do we do with that and so in the, i think in the in the natural element, in the hallucinogenic event, in the vision, uh, in the other, other, otherly world event, then this is totally erased. This is not present. Much like when you go to sleep at night and have dreams. I remember one time, you know, and I just talked about this in terms of ayahuasca, but I remember one time, it was like 9 o'clock, and I was really tired. So um, I laid down on my bed and um, fell asleep. And, you know, I had this dream, and, and it seemed like I lived in a, a completely different world, you know. I had this wife and kids, and, um, you know, it went on and on. I mean, it seemed like a lifetime. And uh, suddenly, hey, woke up, it's a dream, you know. And I look over at my clock, and 15 minutes had passed. Something like that, you know, a short amount of time. So the time element can be vastly different um, depending on what, even what we're doing. You know, if you're really bored, time just clicks by slowly. If you're doing something you enjoy, it goes by fast. Um, you know, it's it, a lot of it's in our mind, but also outside of our mind. You know, physically. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's speed increases, like the speed of light, time changes when you're out there. It takes, you know, thousands, millions of years for some of that light that's way out there at the edges of our solar system, whatever edges mean, to get to our planet. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a big place out there. And so, you know, it, it changes. 
time is is this very abstract concept i think sometimes we try to convince ourselves that we hey you know you got five minutes buddy so it was it was interesting running back and forth you know i got to know the traffic flow and it can be pretty intense here in this little little flagstaff 80,000 people now when i was a boy it was like 25,000 people has grown at a tremendous rate and the and they haven't really changed the roads here they were pretty much laid out in the 50s and 60s mostly the 60s early 70s can't handle the, the flow of traffic so many tourists come up here and go to the ski resort and i used to joke around that sometimes i could run faster than the traffic could go from you know because it, it gets bumper to bumper and no matter how fast your car is, it's not going anywhere. Especially if the if the if the traffic is four or five miles long, like sometimes it is when it goes up to the ski resort. Uh, I can actually outrun a car, not because I'm a fast runner, but because it's trapped in in traffic. And you know, and, and, and I like to say, you can see the consciousness of the light rail, the speed train. Because all these cars are lined up bumper to bumper and they're all moving at kind of the same speed. And you can see the, the train itself manifesting itself at some time when there's a lot more people here, say a half a million or a million people, you can see that there won't be cars. There'll be high-speed trains, there'll be subways um, that, that you'll have to use to get people around because there's just so many cars, everybody can't have, their, have a car especially in these big cities you know so when you're in a, a different time dynamic you know and that's one of the things that einstein this beautiful story of um you know being on a train and moving at, at tremendous amounts of speed that time itself changes uh, for the individual inside the train and for the individuals outside the train so the train's moving at tremendous amount of speed and the, and, and it's it's a different kind of time for the person on the train versus the person outside of the train and so speed changes things and i think our world is i sometimes i wonder why i'm in such a hurry all the time what are you really in a hurry <laughs> to get away from your job to get home with your wife uh and, and and you just keep you know you just keep doing this your whole life until you supposedly retire and then all of a sudden you want to slow down and hey you're if you're one of these rare people now that actually have a, a re full retirement you want to slow down oh I don't have to worry about work anymore. I'm going to drive slow. And why does everybody drive so damn fast? Um, yeah, why do they? <laughs> Are you really saving time or losing it? So I think we get so obsessed with that world that when we get in this spiritual dynamic, when you get in this otherworldly dynamic, um, it erases the time element that you're so familiar with, that you've grown up with. And it gives you a whole different experience. And the reason I bring this up uh, towards the end of this broadcast, because we're getting now to, you know, the end point here. Let's play a song and I'll come back to this. for you and me to stay at home once in a while. We cabaret until the break of day. I'll bet we've danced many a mile. I'd like to see a movie once more. They don't keep people staying up until four. Wouldn't it be a pleasant novelty to tumble in 
early once more. Sleepy time, gal, your turn is night into day. Sleepy time, gal, you dance the evening away. Before each silvery star fades out of sight. Please give me one little kiss. Then let us whisper goodnight. It's getting late, and dear, your pillow's waiting. Sleepy time, gal, when all your dancing is through. Sleepy time, gal, I'll find a cottage for you. You'll learn to cook and to sew. What more you love it, I know. When you're a stay-at-home, play-at-home, eight o'clock, sleepy time, that song <laughs> do you enjoy it hmm yeah so I, I guess in closing I just want to come back to where I, I think I did in my last uh, broadcast is my girlfriend uh, Tiva wow I wish you could have I wish you, I mean some of my friends I guess that might be listening newer um, what an incredible human being um, vastly spiritual person that worked on a different dynamic she would have for sure been a shamanistic person if she would have been born into a tribe because her whole life was governed by uh, you know otherly world effects and she had extreme sensitivities to light and to sound and to touch and she was just a very gifted human being and when she left this world I was I was kind of in shock. I didn't know how much she meant to me. And so, um, since she's passed away, in the sense of the body, I've had some very unusual and beautiful things happen. It's really um, lets me know that she is not dead. She's different. I can't touch or feel her like I did. Have a hug or a kiss or lay down in the bed by her warm body. It's a little different now. Uh, or listen to her funny and crazy uh, things that she'd go through. She had these, um, she had these uh, disabilities that really affected her and made her sad. And she would leave everyone so they didn't have to go through these. Uh, she'd have temporary personality sh- uh, shifts. She couldn't help it. You know, it was just some uh, defect in her her poor body and mind that just these would happen and then she would 
She'd be like, okay, I've learned enough. I'm going to just disappear so you don't have to go through this. She had a lot of sorrow and remorse, you know, and she would go into these, um, like I've said, these sort of, these, these sort of like mental storms. Actually, they weren't mental. They were physical, too. And so she would disappear and was real hard on a lot of us. Um, and now I feel like she's, she's free of that. And her beautiful uh, soul, if you want to call it that, um, it soars the heavens with these, you know, these are all metaphors, because I, <laughs> with angel wings, um, with, she just, and so the power of love uh, transcends death. And I feel her in a way I've never felt her when she was alive. There's this deep, profound love. It's just unquestionable. It just comes on in such a powerful way. It's like, it's like walking out into this in a, into a beautiful summer day and feeling the sun shining on your skin. The love's that powerful. I feel from her. Yeah, and we, you know, because we're at the end of the uh, our broadcast here, I could go into some more, and I, I think I will in time talk about this maybe a little and share it with you. I've really fought against this. I, you know, Facebook's not what it was, um, and a lot of these websites aren't what they were, and you don't, you know, and everything's based on likes, and Facebook's starting to fall apart. But um, I, I felt this time I wanted to share some of of Tiva because she was such a profound being one that suffered a lot and, and remained beautiful and had this profound way of seeing and living her life and I wanted to share her because she didn't really have much of an ego um, she wasn't she didn't really care for Facebook and other things I think one or two pictures ever she put up there she just wasn't concerned with the social media that much and, and then she had you know problems being in the digital realm because it used to be hard on her uh, so I wanted to share I, I didn't want her to disappear into nothing I want so I, I really forced myself to share some of my grief and sorrow uh, so I could share a bit of her I guess um, let other people know about this beautiful being that was part of my life I never met anybody like her I guess that's what makes it really hard. She was such an unusual human being. And I didn't realize until she died that the kind of light that she pulled in my life and the kind of love that she had. And when, she, when she's gone in, in the way she is now physically, you know, it's a loss. But there's this other thing that's happened that I can't explain rationally. You know, I talk about all the time in my episodes. Um, there's just some ways it falls short, you know, like in the quantum world. And, and just how do you rationally explain the multiverse, uh, the many worlds? There, <laughs> there's thousands of worlds out there, and universes, and things that we may not ever be able to understand as human beings are just so out there. We're having a hard time with just this planet, yet alone the universe. And if there's <laughs> unlimited amounts of universes, you know, I I, I want to make this point. Because it's come up in some of my emails, and I've had conversations with a few friends about it. Um, my view of the multiplicity of worlds, uh, as I see it, uh, is you're responsible. You know, I, I have this little uh, mantra, and I think it comes from being with indigenous people that, that this m multiplicity of worlds is something that's been around. They've been around since time immemorial. 
that each world, each life lived, is, is you're responsible. You have to get something out of that. You have to work hard. You have to use what you have. This body is an immensely precious gift. And one of the rules I have, at least in my, in my dream world, and you know, I've talked about this, and you're probably sick of hearing it, you know, that my memory is extensive of the dream world. And my thing is, when you're in there, you're following the laws and rules of that reality. And a lot of times you're not aware, you're just doing it naturally. And when you wake back up, then you're waking up into another set of rules, another way of living. You know, it's a lot like going to another culture, going to another tribe, speaking another language. Um, there's, you're subjected to that. And then when you're living there, um, you kind of start following it and you put aside some of your own cultural experiences and, and, and then you adapt to the tribe. You adapt to their way of seeing reality. And there's just so many ways to live a life and so many different life forms on this planet. And when you study them in detail, like spiders, we're so, you know, I have arachnophobia, but I've learned to be way impressed with spiders. They're very ancient, they're very intelligent, and they have a different way of processing life. They have a different function than we have, and yet it's the same in terms of, of we're connected to, to all these different types of life forms and we're all interweaved together so you could you know just you know you take a section of a forest and spend your entire life studying a hundred yards of a forest on the top of a mountain you know a virgin forest it, you can spend your entire life in just that little part of the forest there's so much complexity going on there and that's what's that is one of the beautiful things about science as we look into the details of all these <coughs> life forms of their of their evolution of their progress and of their failures and of their um learning systems like ants which are one of the most socially perfect creatures in the face of the earth um and you and, they, and they, these some of these creatures have, have survived mass extinctions not one two some maybe even sometimes three times and we haven't even yet our species as far as we know <clears throat> hasn't really hasn't really had that experience of a mass extinction so there's all, you know, it's, so you're responsible for the reality you're in, for the situation you're in, for the body you have. And it's a, and it's a learning, when you look at the beautiful concepts of Hinduism, that ancient process there and some of these other tribes, the body is a gift. And it's, it's, a, it's an experience that you have. And at, at some time, the whole object is to... I don't know. You know, I have a, a problem with this transcending things, you know, and leaving behind your body. And I, I happen to think it's a valuable experience. That we, that each of these experiences, no matter how many you're, you, you've had and will have, reincarnation or not reincarnation, is a learning event that you're, that's, that's a part of whatever you really are on a larger scale, on a, and, you know, the microcosm and mac, macrocosm that each of these experiences, each of these realms, this time period you're in, it's, it's important to learn something and take that ex extremely serious and realizing that um, you're not always going to have that. It's going to disappear. And I, and, and I think that was the thing with, with my, you know, with, with, with Tiva was I didn't realize what an incredible human being that, you know, that I was in love with. Um, and how selfless that she was, and how I think now I realize how much she really suffered. And I'm sad to say, um, 
that she <clears throat> had not too pleasant of a passing and um, that's hard because she had already went through so much in her life her short life of 44 years she was a little bit younger than me um, I did never seem to make much of a difference between us in fact yeah so um love people and you're close to and realize that we have these limitations on time that we we're going to miss people and we're going to welcome them in the world when somebody's born when you meet a new friend and, and i think what you have is the moment right now and that's so precious and the right now is ours right now so you got to grab onto that without getting too much you know the, the two great eternities is it emerson that said that or um thoreau i don't remember the past in in the future we're never you know they're they're always they're just they're the past is gone and the future is forever arriving um you have the right now and that's that is magical and um but when you lose someone what happens and that's the thing that's my experience is you don't lose them they're there and um i don't know sometimes if we're fully conscious of that fact that we really see life and the complexities of things as it is i don't think i think humans fall very short i think science is thousands of years <laughs> behind where it will be and um and, and, and religion even it's, and we're yeah all right so let's you know, and let's save more thoughts for <laughs> another broadcast. Um, <clears throat> it's the early part of November. I'm having a beautiful autumn here in Flagstaff. Oh my God, it's just been amazing. Uh, this, we've had snow already. There's a lot of deep snow in the mountains. Uh, we've had cool evenings. And now we're getting back to really warm days where you can wade through the leaves. And there's still a lot of them in the trees as well as on the ground. And um, experience this beautiful changing of seasons and experience the death of plants uh, the passing away of things as we do in Day of the Dead uh, and uh, in Mexico and Halloween Sam Hain and, um, and as the sun descends into what it's called its winter house and we have less daylight uh, and we don't really have a gr the growing season like we had in the summer and in the springtime. And re reflecting back on family, reflecting back on Christmas, and reflecting back on on ceremonies where you're with family and friends. And uh, so this is a, I think this is a time of year for reflections. And certainly, uh, Tiva has given that to me uh, in a way I haven't experienced it in a long time and the reflections of her and the tenderness of her and the difficulty of her short life and um and also there's something beautiful of her and you know i'm, I'm at a loss to totally explain that rationally that she's alive i don't fully understand how but there's an an intimacy we have that i've never i never experienced in our physical relationship it's a, it's a divine beautiful sunlight so to speak that's beyond anything I've experienced in my life that I can remember uh, and so uh, yeah 
love, seasons, autumn, holidays, um, family, friends, time, uh, and the value of your precious life. Uh, the connection it has to friends and family and to city and community and to each other. Learn how to say I love you. <laughs> so one of the, you know, one of the last things that Tiva asked me, you know, one of the last times I seen her, she's like, Dave, do you really love me? And uh, as I held her, I looked at her and I said, yeah, Tiva, I love you. And she said, Dave, that's a powerful word. She said, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And that's the last, the last things I ever said to her. And um, the love between us has not died. It's only increased. And so if I can give you anything in this broadcast tonight is the power of love. And how so I think sometimes maybe science needs to look more at <laughs> that. And how miraculous it is. Um, and what it can do. And yeah. Alright, have a nice night. Beautiful dreams. The it's it's getting blue out there and it looks like the really the little pieces of sunlight's coming up now. And um, I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> All right, love you guys. Uh, let's live our life the best we can and let's cherish those that we have with us while they're there. Don't have too many regrets later on. Um, move forward into the moment. That's the beauty as you're living in the moment. All right. Um, in closing here, I'd just like to mention uh, a record, a CD that I and uh, Tiva used to play when we first met. Uh, when she could focus um, uh, is um, this incredible album uh, by E of the Eels uh, Electroshock Blues um, which I've had a little bit of experience with in reality <laughs> that's where I first kind of discovered the album anyway it's something that I and Tiva used to enjoy listening to when we could and I never realized uh, some years later, how how true and applicable um, that would uh, become, and so um, an amazing uh, an amazing album, and um, it's something uh, if you haven't listened to, you should, uh, and it's quite quite good. It's just an you know incredibly beautiful and sad album, and uh, and almost every song is applicable in, in my case. And uh, so you get a chance to listen to that. And I'm giving it a plug because it's, it's quite famous and it's really helped a lot of people and it's quite good. And it did mark a, a substantial change in, in music. So he has had a lot of influence on people that sometimes aren't willing to admit it. The guy himself is quite a genius. And so, um, and he always maintains his humility and, and, and his you know, his baseline with life. He doesn't ever get beyond himself. And I think it's because of this, this incredible, these incredible tragedies that he went through. If you want to see an incredible documentary, see the documentary the BBC made or an English film company made on uh, his dad, Hugh Everett, and, and, and then 
he goes and, and tours and meets all these people that knew his father, you know, and the genius his father was, and goes through the history of that. And it's it's really quite good, and it just it's really worth watching. I think you can actually get the full resolution video on Vimeo now. Uh, e set it up so you can watch it. He used to play this at his concerts uh, ten years ago. Before you do the concert, you could watch this video. You you should watch this. But the song I want to end up uh, end the, the broadcast tonight with is from another album that came, I think, right after that one, uh, Soul Jacker. And um, there's a song on there that uh, really is applicable to Iantiva. And so I want to play this to her wherever she is. Uh, I, I love her. Um, this song is <laughs> kind of a hard one for me to listen to just because um, it really connects me to being with her. And... Um, and feeling her love and kindness, and I miss that greatly. So when I play this song, it reminds me of her, but it also reminds me um, that she's gone. So um, I'm going to play that now. Uh, have a have a nice day. It's uh, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Uh, I love you, Tiva, uh, and I miss you. Yeah.
Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA.